0: Hi, I'm Ben Mink and you're listening to Talking Blues. I'm in, uh, inside of a car.
1: <laughs> so why are you inside a car?
0: Oh, my wife needed a, ma- a nap. Um, we are currently staying at a hotel in Vancouver. Oh. Um, we have changed residences so we're currently without uh, our next place and my daughter's here so we came to visit her and so we're at a very nice hotel and enjoying ourselves as tourists in our own home so wow. our own town.
1: how long will it be till you get to the new place
0: I don't know it depends <laughs> on when, what we find
1: We've oh, we been looking found for quite yet. a
0: while. No, but we uh, we have a, a cottage on Pender Island, so we are hanging there and uh, coming to town and enjoying the uh, the adventure.
1: So tell me, you're, you're a multi instrumentalist. I know that you started off with the guitar, um, then went to the fiddle. But tell me how music came into your life.
0: Um, I think it, it, it's it was always in my life. I mean, my father's family were uh, his. My grandfather was a religious singer and um, I think we spoke about it just before we started the interview. My parents are Holocaust survivors from Eastern Europe and my father's family were Hasidic religious, um, you know, uh, singers and um, very serious about um, that part of, uh, you know, the history within the family. Um, And song and joy through dance was part of that. Um, they studied and they um, and they prayed and that's really what they did and that's all they did so the idea of composition and music and um, it being a lifestyle and something you're compelled to do I suppose came genetically to a large degree my sister studied violin at the conservatory on in in Cleveland on scholarship and I used to go to the lessons and sit on the floor and um I was there for years while she studied with the concert master at the Cleveland Symphony. So though I didn't play, I absorbed. And that's really how it started. Both my parents are extremely musical and we listened to you know, rock and roll and Broadway and um, religious music and uh, you name it. But it was always in the house, everyone sang. And um, it's, I think all I really ever wanted to do. And I was very fortunate in being able to carry that through so
1: um i hope you don't mind me asking about your parents being holocaust survivors how how did you did they talk about that a lot or did they not talk about it at all
0: they didn't not talk about it a lot it was it was it permeated you know every moment of our uh, childhood and and everything i think it was the the cloud and the the air that we breathed but it wasn't particularly de- depressing it wasn't, um, you know, it, it wasn't oppressive in a way that um, I think it would destroy a family at all. It simply was what it was. And you know that as a kid, you, you know, everybody grows up in the house. They don't know if it's dysfunctional. They don't know if it's a great house till they get older. Right. Um, my parents are remarkable people. I mean, stronger than I think any people I've ever heard about. And they had a great sense of humor. And I think that's really what got us through it. There was a lot of Hogan's hero type dark stories, but they were told with um, just black humor. And it's simply something that you grew up with. I think your viewpoint is not the same as anybody else's that you're going to school with, unless they had the same background. Right. Um, And the differences between other children who are Holocaust survivors It's very unique. Everybody has their own family history. I knew a lot of them growing up and um, everybody's story was different. You know, some parents functioned well, some parents, it was heartbreaking what, what they went through. Some Mm -hmm. parents denied it. Some parents didn't even tell their kids what they went through. Right. Um, Mine, um, they were very matter of fact and, um, but funny. And I think that was the, you know, that was the grease that got us through it all it wasn't without, um, uh, effects of course. Right. Um, and I think it does, you know, to bring it back to music, it definitely affects the music. I think, you know, there's a strong sense of justice and, and fairness and rooting for the, the underdog and honesty and truth. I think in hopefully most of what I have tried to create and humor, um, and it speaks for who you are as a person. I think if you're honest as a person, it, it uh, comes through in your music, hopefully.
1: well, wow, which makes total sense. Can I, when, when you talked about your parents being very serious about their music, did, did that seriousness of music, did you adopt that immediately?
0: Well, it wasn't always serious. I mean, my father had a remarkable ear he, for music. He remembered, you know, like the organ grinder's melody when he was for more he was 4 years old in a, a tiny town in Poland and <laughs> and but he remembered very funny folk songs and religious songs and he loved Ray Charles and you know he just had a great ear and my mother as well you know they loved broadway they loved rock they loved just good songs and they had pretty good taste really looking back <laughs> so great Ray Charles is a good it's a good uh, person to admire if you you know speak English poorly I'd say that it says something for Ray Charles
1: for sure um so when you sat there at the conservatory and you were absorbing it were were you interested in playing at that point or it was just you were there and you were actually just absorbing
0: I was just absorbing I was really young I mean I was about two till I guess four or five and um you know, but I remember it pretty well. You know, I remember some days my mother would take me down to the, uh, the library and they'd put headphones on and she'd put a symphony on. I'd listen to a record or I'd be up right on, on underneath, you know, the teacher's uh, desk and he would be teaching. And um, I would be sitting in on the lessons, listening to everything. And if you've got a good ear, it's like picking up a language. You know, you're going to hear it and you're going to pick it up. When you're young, especially. But when you finally picked up the the violin, did it come easy to you? Yeah, it came really easy. I mean, I was already playing guitar a bit. So the left hand, I knew what it felt like to press a string. And the bowing was simply an extension of a pick. Um, I know it's a different mechanic and maybe it's, you know, not as easy as I'm indicating. But <laughs> to me, it was. It was just like, I mean, if you're a kid and you take a straw that you're drinking from and rub it against a string, you know, that's that's essentially a, a, or a popsicle stick, that's a bow. And to me, if somebody told me, as long as they didn't tell me, hey, you're doing it wrong, kid, you know, you got to do it this way. I didn't care. So I was able to get a, a sound out of it, like almost instantly. And it's funny now, you know, I have daughters and I would test them the same way. I just give it to them and say, here, make a sound. They could do it. My brother could do it. Um, I think most people can, whether you want to continue doing, it's another thing. And And I wanted to immediately. Yeah. But I was sort of, um, playing off of electric guitar and, uh, violin. And I saw the similarities between, for instance, um, you know, Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton's long sustained tone that sounded a lot like a violin. And at a certain point, um, when I was I think 17 or 18 I was playing in a band that opened for Led Zeppelin at a club called the rock pile. And it was a, an incredible experience. We'd open for different groups like uh, Chuck Berry and um, John Mayle and, and all sorts of people every week. And Jimmy Page played, um, using a violin bow on, um, I think it was dazed and confused. Yeah, yeah, And, um, I saw the bow sitting there on his amp. So during a break, I just picked it up. I go, that's very cool. And then remembered, Oh yeah, I can play some violin. Wouldn't it be cool to plug it in, make it loud and, and just play it. And, um, and so I started getting much more serious about, uh, violin playing, uh, country stuff, um, was always into that and learned some fiddle tunes and it just sort of took off from there. Um, but it was both instruments that I that I was really interested in.
1: So sorry. So the fact that you saw Jimmy Page's bow sitting there
0: had some influence on you. Oh, absolutely! Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I mean, like they were not the Led Zeppelin of, of of you know mythology and lore. Yeah. Then, They were a band. I mean, I was really into the Yardbirds and Jimmy Page played with them, so I know who they were. But when they played you know in, in february of uh 1969 which is when it was they had to advertise the band as led zeppelin featuring jimmy page because nobody knew who they were and though they were respected by musicians um there was not that much interested in, so there's not that much interest at that point so you know we'd hang around all day with them and you'd hang you just talk and um they were just burgeoning rock stars at that point. So you could you could borrow a violin bow. I probably shouldn't have, but thank, <laughs> thank you, Jimmy. <laughs> I was very careful with it. And, um, you know, you could exchange ideas. You could talk a bit. It was a, a very gifted time. It was, it was incredible, really.
1: So this was the country rock band Mary Lou Horner, correct? That's
0: right, yeah, with the worst name possible so there, there, <laughs> but, was, there wasn't a mary lou horner no it was i have to say it was my idea it was really mary lou horner whiskey cloggers but i <laughs> i i thought if people thought there was a girl in the group they'd come to see us so and then it became a joke because we were really into buck owens and and a lot of country we played some country in the uh, in the band and um the name was too big to put in the marquee so they took whiskey, <laughs> whiskey cloggers off yeah it was a very special time when okay we so kids.
1: yeah okay so your your young kids playing and getting a nice weekly gig at the rock pile yeah. um what do you are you thinking this is what you will be doing for the rest of your life or did you have a plan as to what being in the music business meant
0: I had no plan other than I I did not want to sell insurance for a living I knew I was not equipped for the conventional world um I designed my life around the idea that no, I can't do this. No, I can't do this. No, I can't do this. And mu- I was left with music. I just didn't know if I had the courage to pursue it because, you know, where I come from, everyone becomes a dentist. Um, you don't take chances like that, especially with what my parents went through having lost everything. When you finally have an opportunity to give your kid a, an education as, you know, a lot of immigrant parents the same way, they they want to do everything for their kids. For me to make that choice was probably very painful for them but I don't see that I had a choice you know I got hired um, someone was willing to pay me even if it was two dollars and fifty cents a week I didn't care I lived cheap and I loved it and it was an adventure and uh, I've never regretted it
1: but you you quickly
0: played with some
1: pretty decent name musicians like Murray McLaughlin like FM yep and and so when you were going through this, did it seem like you were on the right path and and achieving the goal that you had set out to not become an insurance salesman?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it was. I mean, it, it wasn't all that quick. It didn't seem that quick at the time. I mean, I um, started playing with some folk singers in my early 20s in an Irish band. And then it went to the Toronto folk scene. Right. Um, I played with string band and did a lot of session work for country singers like uh, Ian and Sylvia and um, did the Ronnie Prophet show and uh, George Hamilton IV and, and a lot of those kind of country roots shows. And um, then I met Murray McLaughlin through um, a session I did for him on uh, Sweeping the Spotlight Away, I think, on that album.
1: So can I ask and, you, how yeah. did you get the original session work i mean were you just that good that you could
0: i guess people not many people played violin and mandolin at the time um, okay. i barely played mandolin i just <laughs> figured i could because it's the same fingering as as a violin and i just you know you just tremble with your right hand so what's a big deal but yeah i think it was through th- word of mouth um uh i did a set a couple sessions for um some folk singers like Valdi, And then it, it became a small scene. You know, there was a lot of recording being done at Eastern sound and Ken Friesen, who was the engineer. I think he was kind enough to recommend me to certain people who were, you know, doing work. And when they needed uh, a fiddler, or mandolin, they call. And I guess if you, if you cut it at the session and um, then w- word gets around, you know, Murray asked me if I wanted to do a couple shows with them and I did with him and Dennis Pendrith. And, um, we all got along, you know, I remember driving to the show wherever it was in how in Waterloo or something. And we were laughing. So, um, it works. It worked. Right. And then great years,
1: great years. Um, and then you also joined FM.
0: Yeah, that was after murray McLaughlin. I was with Murray for four or five years, really, uh, you know, despite doing a session work with other people. And FM, in, you know, it, it allowed me to incorporate the idea of writing because I was a sideman really for most of those, um, most of the acts up to that point. I was about, I guess, 26 or something. And I met the guys in FM. Again, they hired me because, you know, Nash had just left and they had a deal to do a um, direct disc album. And they didn't, have, they didn't have a violinist, a mandolinist and, and electric, who understood electric playing. Uh, there were only two of us in the city, I think. <laughs> so uh, they said, who's this guy? He sounds like an old hick. You know, Let's give him a call. And uh, they were surprised when we were all sort of about the same age. And um, I just did it as a session. And that worked. So they said, look, do you want to maybe join the band? We've got a record that is really happening now. And we need somebody to fill because Nash just left. Uh, I knew nothing about the progressive music scene, like absolutely <laughs> nothing. Um, I remember, you know, a lot of people know I'm friends with Getty Lee, and he sat me down once to educate me about the progressive scene. <laughs> and he, we played, we had one evening where we, you know, drank Armagnac, and he goes, okay, this is called Dark Side of the Moon. It's by a group called Pink Floyd. And we just did a crash <laughs> courts and progressive, and I go, oh, okay, I get it now. You know, it's just folk music way louder. You know, and uh,
1: <laughs> that's interesting that way it's you're in. um, But it's also it also meant that you were in a different position in the band. So like com- yeah. composition is one thing, but also um, you were more of a, I presume more of a pre- featured player.
0: Yeah, I was, but um, I mean, I always wrote. You know, I always wrote songs. Um, we just called it making stuff up. And if you had a, a, you know, if you like, if you had a job, you would write a bunch of things the day before it was that sort of thing. Some people are, are real bonafide songwriters where they write, you know, about the love of their life. They write about a great strife. Um, I always felt I could do it um, given a timeline and a real reason. And I love doing it. I do it all the time. I think it's just an extension of improvisation. It's just very select improvisation where you look for the hooks, you look for the riffs that really count, and you put it together in a compositional landscape that hopefully has you know, hooks and really communicates. But um, when I started playing with FM, I learned an awful lot from those guys very quickly about how to structure pop songs that you know things I never really thought about. I also learned a lot from Mendelssohn Joe, you know, about drums and groove right. and things that I intu- intuitively felt, but watching him play and working with him really got down to a a grassroots um, earth and stone understanding of what rhythm really is.
1: But I guess my point was all sudden you're not a side player. In FM, I would presume mm-hmm. that you're more of a focus. Yeah. How was that adjustment for you?
0: Um, it was fun. <laughs> it really <laughs> was. Uh, it was not easy. You know, we toured an awful lot, and there were a lot of business problems and some personality conflicts, but um, it was a fantastic education and something that you know the rest of my career would never have happened without that it was it was like a real university for me and i enjoyed it i mean it took a little bit to i think cameron uh, hawkins uh helped a lot in in educating me about you know how to do an interview how you know you got to get out there you're the only one who's not stuck behind some equipment so <laughs> you've got to stand up there you got to jump off a drum riser a little bit you got to look like you're having fun and i was so um, it was a learning experience.
1: But quite different from the Silver Tractors.
0: Oh, yeah. It's not a, it's a <laughs> completely different thing. I mean, you know, Murray was a star and yeah. Silver Tractors were uh, they're a great band, great band. Um, but you're still a support, you know, and you're not writing the material. You, your job is to support the singer. And even in a group like FM, your job is really to support the singer. But you know, progressive music was instrumental in its very nature, so you could you could hot dog as well.
1: <laughs> um, how, like, I living out of Toronto, I, I knew FM quite well. But how widespread was the range? Like, how did they tour the states? Did they?
0: Oh yeah, we toured the states a number of times. Uh, both on our own and um, with Rush, toward, um, which was a fantastic experience, the whole thing. I can imagine. Um, yeah, it was, um, you know, I was just thinking of that the other day because Eddie Van Halen passed away. And, you know, <laughs> we, we we met him very briefly. I was with uh, in Vegas just doing a little bit of gambling. I'm not, it's not a problem for me, but, you know, we were playing blackjack and... And he came over and changed my luck. Like he sat down and, and gambled with us a bit and changed my luck. But I was thinking about that. Um, it's, a, it's a great loss. It's such a shame, it's way, way, way too early. Oh, but, that's for uh, sure. But no, the tours with, we toured quite a bit in the States with FM.
1: And did you think at that point, this is this is what I want to do? This is who I am? Um,
0: that's a good question. No, I don't think it was who I w- was and who I I was, you know, felt I wanted to be really. Um, it was fun. But I felt I wanted to say something more personal, really, because, you know, the, the sound of FM, who they were, even though it changed when I joined the band somewhat, it was still on a traje- trajectory of its own, um, determined primarily by, you know, black noise and who they were before that and um, I think we did some really good stuff and a lot of people liked it and they still like it to some extent but I don't think it's really where you know the greatest part of me was it didn't give me a chance to really um, incorporate everything that I knew
1: so when did you know what that was in terms of who, who you are and the musician or the music you want to make
0: well, I think it started um, when I did my solo record, which, you know what I mean, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not that pro- proactive for myself. I kind of stay beneath the radar generally. And I've had some very good friends who, through the years, have pushed me, And including with my solo album. I mean, I played in a, in a, a band with um, a very dear friend, um, Alan Soberman, who said, you can get a grant. You can make a record. You know, you could do it. And I said, look, I've never done this kind of thing. I don't even write. He goes, you'll learn. (laughs) And he he pushed me to do it. And to his credit, I mean, it wouldn't have happened without him. And um, I was already in FM and signed to Passport Records. So I talked to them. And all I did was submit a bunch of stuff to the the, uh, Canada Council, who kindly and uh, gratefully gave me a grant. And then I went over to Grant Avenue and Dan Lanwa was my, you know, the engineer at the time we'd done it. We'd all done a lot of work together. We all kind of came up through the same folk scene and, and the whole, you know, rootsy, but adventurous side of things. And we did over a period of a year, whenever I could, we added a bit of tracks here and there and uh, guys in FM played on it, a few friends. And um, I realized then, okay, I had something to say. You know, it. um, you know, that was me at its most basic. Now, I, I'm critical right now of the writing, looking back, I can see the writing is a bit quadrant, you know, four of everything, but it was the first time I was really doing that. And I learned from it. So afterwards I felt, um, yeah, I got a sound, you know, I've got something to say and, um, it would be great to meet a singer. And I did when I I met Katie Lang. And, um, you know, there were a few dark years in between, three or four very dark years for me. But
1: so, can you uh, explain what you mean by dark years?
0: Well, FM broke up, and I had a long term, you know, relationship with a girlfriend that broke up, and my best friend died, and um, a lot of things. Sort of, you know, went south. Wow. And, um, you know, but a, a lot like any situation, you can learn and you can grow from it. I made some great new friends. I kept the old ones. I re- reinvented myself, really, you know, and worked on some demos myself, of which nothing really happened from, but I got a skill set. And, Met Katie Lang in uh, Japan when I was playing with Kano, a French-Canadian group. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I am,
1: and what a great band they were.
0: Yeah, they were a great band, great guys, and also learned a tremendous amount from them. They were just, like, very generous and spirit, and we were playing in um, an expo in Japan in in 1985, I think, and uh, KD was on the bill. It was Canada Week, and they had all these people from Canada, Um, contributing what Canada has to offer. And I met Katie there jammed with her on a couple songs like, you know, Johnny get angry. And we started talking and realized we had a tremendous amount in common. And it came to me remembering a song that I started writing when um, I was about 17 playing with a group called Icarus uh, with Eddie Schwartz. I don't know if you're familiar with him. And, um, I wrote a song, was too shy to bring it to them at that time. And it was a, it was sort of a rock square dance. And then my, when I came back from Japan a week later, my niece was going through my old school notes and says, Oh, look at these notes. They're so funny. I found them. And the song was in there. And I took it as kind of a sign to finish writing it. And I sent it to Katie's, um, you know, secondary road manager. And heard back from her and um, her manager and Seymour Stein within 24 hours that they loved the song, Why Don't We Get You Guys Together to Write. And uh, my world shifted very quickly.
1: Wow. Um, I want to follow up on that, but if we could just go back to your solo album, the Foreign Mm -hmm. Exchange album. I just heard it the other day, and I thought for something that was recorded in 1980,
0: I believe that was the year, yeah, and probably I, earlier. I think it started in 78 or 79, yeah.
1: But but it really stands the test of time. Like, it doesn't sound dated to me.
0: Well, I, I, d- I, I think, yeah, I, I I don't know how calculated that is. I mean, I, I think I always had a sense that if, you know, if you use a wah-wah pedal, it's going to date that song. <laughs> uh, and, you know, unless you want to do a wink of the eye funny thing, it's going to date that album very quickly. So I th- I was always aware of doing things that were trying to do things kind of timeless, you know, it's like wearing jeans and, and, uh, desert boots or something. That's not going to go in or out of style. Right. Um, if you wear platform shoes and, uh, you know, acid wash jeans, they will go out of style until they come back the next time. But there are certain things that just last like acoustic instruments and licks that are not, um, strongly identifiable with a particular style. Um, if you're conscious of it while you're writing it and recording it, those songs will, or the sounds will be timeless. And hopefully the material itself will, will hold up and that will last through time. But, you know, a lot of it is just getting the thing noticed, anything noticed these days. There's so many incredible players out there and, and talented people. It breaks my heart to see what, what they have to go through now. Mm -hmm. It's to be young now and talented is you know, not, it, it was always difficult in music, but it is just heartbreaking now.
1: I agree, but I, I just get the sense that when I meet the young talented people, they're determined and probably just as determined as you
0: back then. Yeah. You know, and, and then yeah. they find a way. I know, they are. I mean, I've got two young daughters in their early 20s, or middle early 20s, and I see what they go through, and they're wonderful kids, and their friends are great, and You know, to one extent, you only know what you know, but if you're talented and you got no place to run with it, like especially during COVID, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you can develop other skill sets and go sideways, but you want to be performing. You want to be sharing it in a tribal sense with with everybody in the world. And, you know, Zoom's a great substitute. It's it's better than nothing, but boy, it, it lacks... You know, you can't get the three-dimensional human tribal feeling there. Not the same way. There's no no comparison.
1: No, or the amount of time that you put into doing gigs like you did.
0: Doing no, a weekly you gigs, man. Right? No, no. You know, I, I, I serve on the board of the Vancouver Symphony, and it's really interesting to talk to some of the players there and the conductor about, you know, they have to recalibrate their, their sense of timing and pitch based on a six foot distance Mm -hmm. and and that's not easy i mean you can get used to it but it's not easy and i don't know if the quality will be you know how how can the quality be the same as it is under normal circumstances we were not designed as symphony wasn't designed to sit six feet apart even if there's only 10 players um you can get pretty good at it but it's going to feel so good when it's done when it's over (laughs) <laughs> and everybody can get close again yeah, and yeah. uh you can lean in um you know but we're all doing the best we can
1: for sure so when you met katie did you mm-hmm. so you knew that there was this connection did you did you know that did you have a sense of what what
0: yeah well, was? I'll, t- I'll tell you what happened um uh yeah i i saw a sound check and i i went oh my god what a voice you know uh you know, she kind of reminded me of a combination of Bette Midler and Wayne Newton, but I knew there was a lot more there. And even though she was doing the country punk thing, and it was it was humorous, there was such serious talent there that um, you knew it could move the world. But um, we met backstage, and um, she was wearing a cowboy shirt with these little um, figurines, got country figurines that you get from train. Uh, model sets right. On, she sewed them onto her shirt and I, I said here hang on a sec I want to show you something and I pulled out my electric violin and had the same figurines on the inside of my electric violin which I, <laughs> I blew it in for fun you know and we knew you know we were warped in the same way and we started talking about country and the, and the people we admired and you know how just our perspective was so similar in how we saw all that and what could be done. And, uh, but then she went back to um, Edmonton and I went back to Toronto and, you know, we didn't make any commitment. I jammed with her at the show and it was fun, but I didn't really think too much of it. And um, then I sent her that song, Turn Me Around and another song, Tune Into My Wave. And she said, listen, we're going to England to make a record with Dave Edmonds. Would you consider coming and joining the band? And, um, I'd never been to England and it seemed like a great opportunity. I was, wasn't, I was free Mm -hmm. and, um, I took it and, um, it was one of the great adventures of my life for sure. It was fantastic.
1: So when something like that happens and it happens a lot to many musicians, just this chance meeting that changes your whole life, Mm -hmm. how do you view that?
0: Well, it's hard to view at the time as um, you don't know the impact of these yeah. things until it goes by. I knew, um, you know, having worked with very, very good singers before, what kind of a, a talent she was. And I knew that I can't sing. I mean, I, I never I, I tried and uh, being asthmatic and, you know, phlegmatic, I, I, you know, I just could never pull it off. I can sing things back to people i can describe ideas but my voice was really in my the instruments i played and um to work with great singers was um you know a wonderful opportunity and i felt i had something to offer them because i can frame a vocal quite well i think you know with the way it, it the instrumentals go around it and um you know and and i like companionship you know it's it's a, it's a very difficult thing to sit in a room and create music by yourself. Mm-hmm. I can do it, but it's lonely. there's that, the, that joy part of it. It's not there that moment of like, you know, holy shit, that is really good. Yeah. 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 Let's do it again. in the chorus, um, you know, that <laughs> moment of discovery, which is hard to do when you're on your own and, and working in, you know, the digital platforms with 6,000 cornucopia choices per second, based on sample libraries, um, it's not the same thing. It's being fed to you instead of you, you know, digging in the earth and growing your own little thing. And there's times and places for both of it. But personally, I think when you're in a a band with a, a group of creative individuals and you discover that moment or you do the take and it's undeniable that it is so much better than the 15 attempts you just did before that, that's a moment that can't really be described. And I don't think it happens nearly enough these days because everyone has their own computer.
1: Right. You wrote these songs and you continue to write, then you have a massive hit with Constant Craving. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard it and fell in love with the song. Oh, did, it ha- did it have that effect on you? Like, did you know it was something special?
0: No, not really. I I knew it was it was good. Um KD was really the last on board for it. I think um she felt it was probably too bouncy and poppy for, you know, the record. Um and it's not that I even saw commercial potential in it. Um I just liked the song. I thought it had a lot going for it. It wasn't like anything else quite on the album. And um no, I had no idea it was going to do what it did. Wow! Nothing. I just. Um, I think uh, we were playing somewhere in the U.S. We were, you know, because it came out as a single in Britain first, I think, and nothing happened for a few months. Oh! And then it, then then they launched it in um, in America, and it sort of started garnering radio stations right away. And they said, you know what, based on our, our data and our stats, this looks like it's a hit. And so we were on the road. I didn't think too much about it. You know, you're just playing the shows and getting on the bus. And then I came home for a break like about a week and a half later. And I'm hearing it in the drugstore. And my friends are all <laughs> telling me I'm hearing it everywhere. And uh, then I got the picture. But, um, you know, you wait your whole life for a moment like that. I don't think I really realized what it did and took because we were so busy touring and and doing that till I was somewhere catching a flight home and I heard a Muzak version of it <laughs> in, in Houston I, you know thinking to myself, that sounds really familiar, that's an interesting chord change, and you realize someone has schmaltzed it up and turned it into a Muzak <laughs> background music for insurance salesmen <laughs> i you know I
1: always ask ask people who've had hits about that because i just find that whole concept so spectacular that you could write Mm -hmm. something just sitting in the bedroom or whatever strumming chord then you record it and and sometimes people think that this is a great song this could be a hit but in your case you didn't even think that and then it becomes well
0: no you don't i mean you know if i looked at it analytically i'd go okay yeah the tempo's good mid-tempo it's got a backbeat You know, like Chuck Berry said, it's got a backbeat, you can't lose it. You know, it wasn't weird. It had an easy chorus, uh, had a guitar solo. It had the format that fits radio. But, you know, I think, you know, the song definitely uh, resonated with enough people at the same time. But, you know, there's a giant machine behind that as well. I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to diminish what the song is, but it doesn't happen without the big machine. And Katie was doing really, really a tremendous amount of press. And she was, you know, having come out just before that, she was really in the news. Um, I don't think you can discount the topical advantage at the time of it, you know, helping the song as well. Mm -hmm. But enough time's gone by. The song has remained, you know, strong for me personally and I guess for a number of other people sure you, know, you hear it sung on american idol and and such so um i'm you know eternally grateful for it it changed my life and uh and you're right it's a thrill that like like no other
1: yeah i can imagine because and i also also wonder like how many other songs you've written that you thought was so much better that did nothing or
0: not nothing but oh, that didn't fun- get it to- tons of them it it has nothing to do with that i mean there's songs that people even haven't heard and i'm probably prouder of them than constant craving or at least as proud but there's not a chance on earth that they'd ever even get on the radio you know they're just strange little ethnic (laughs) or rock songs and i think they're great pieces of music and i had a lot of fun playing them but you know there's there's an awful lot of things that make a song a hit and timing has an awful lot to do with it
1: so then the other thing that happened with that song was that The Stones did a song that was similar to that.
0: Yeah. And yeah. then
1: contacted you and said I think we think that this song is similar, is that correct?
0: Yeah, that it was it was just a whole just an amazing story. You know, I was home diapering my newborn second <laughs> child and I get a call from my lawyer and she goes, "Are you sitting down?" And I said, "No, I'm diapering my kid." <laughs> and she says, "Well, sit down." I just got a call from from the the Rolling Stones lawyer. And I said, Oh really? What's that got to do with me? And she said, well, they've got a new album coming out Monday and they've got a single. They recorded for that and they just shot the single and that's being released Monday too. And I go, well, good for them. But what's that got to do with me? And she goes, well, Keith Richards daughter was at home and she heard the single and she said, dad, that's constant craving. And I said, well, is it? <laughs> she, and she said, "I don't know." And she played it to me over the phone. And uh, I go, "Yeah, it sounds an awful lot like it. it." That's very nice of them, you know. But they recognized that there were enough similarities there. They didn't want to hassle. They were being complete gentlemen about it. And I was stunned and very, very grateful. I said, "I'm happy to accept their kind offer if, if you know, they want to make it." easy for themselves they have a whole product coming out so wonderful and um we got writing credit and I got a great story out of it I mean <laughs> when I was a kid you know I I knew every one of the rolling stones songs and played all their keith rich's guitar solos and you know we would joke hey one day the stones are going to borrow one of our songs and have to count us in you know and they um, did and they did yeah I mean so it's just Ridiculous, the whole but, thing, but I'm very, very happy though for it, though.
1: Yeah, and very classy of them
0: to do that, I think. Yeah, total gentlemen. I mean, I, I think that KD ran into Mick Jagger on an airplane somewhere and they just sort of smiled at each other. And, <laughs> you know, it was all very cool. I mean, um, they are, you know, very, very cool about it.
1: Okay, so over the years, you've worked with a lot of different musicians and wrote songs with a lot of different musicians. And I mean mm-hmm. different in, in terms of different genres from, from Metallica to Elton John to whoever, right? Like, yeah. You, you've worked with a lot of people. Yes, I is, have. Is, your, is the approach to writing different? I presume it's different with every different musician, but is it different by genre? So, if you're working with Hart versus working with Bruce Coburn or Murray McLaughlin, is your approach to how you write a song different?
0: Yeah, but I think it's it's more uh, it, it's different, catered more to the person you're working with than the genre, because in many ways I see genres almost the same. What differentiates them is volume and attitude, usually. Right. Like, you know, that's why I was joking about uh, Pink Floyd just being, you know, folk music louder. You know, look, mo- you can be sure most of those guys started in folk or piano lessons, classical piano lessons. You know, drugs hit and it became psychedelic and it became a, a bit of a different thing lyrically. But it was still, you know, drawn from uh, the Dylan experience and the introspection and, the you know, looking at a song as something, you know, beyond... Um, you know, uh, the fifties, um, I can't really think of, you know, the, the, those mindless lyrics of the fifties, yeah, 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 you know, it became more introspective and personal. Um, so when you're working with um, let's say uh, uh, writers like Ann Wilson and, and uh, Nancy Wilson from heart who are, you know, just brilliant mm-hmm. in, in so many ways, um and you first gauge, okay, where are their instincts? You know, when I worked with Anne, we were having some trouble on her first album getting the, you know, the vocals, and people would think, how in the world can that happen? That's Ann Wilson. Well, there was one moment where, you know, we she wanted to we were looking at more acoustic stuff and it just wasn't really delivering. And I decided to plug an electric guitar in just to help guide her and keep her company because the track wasn't very adorned at the time. And the minute I plugged it in, it was like a switch got flipped and she became the Ann Wilson everybody knows. Hmm. And I was stunned. (laughs) Now I should have known because she grew up with Nancy Wilson next to her and that's what triggers her. As soon as she intuitively hears a, a loud, you know, electric guitar, it amps her up. Right. And I learned a lot about it from, from that moment, but you have to learn the people you're playing with. Um, To me, all music's kind of the same. Progressive music is nothing but, you know, Bulgarian or Eastern European folk music with odd meters played loudly (laughs) and and a drum kit um, reinforcing those things, you know, with a bit of jazz in there and uh, some psychedelic lyrics. It all kind of mounts down to, you know, the same thing. You know, even the guys in Rush. I mean, Alex comes from an Eastern European background where those folk rhythms are there all the time. He grew up listening to that. Right. and getty getty too so it's it's in their um it's in their dna what dna as as much as loving who yes the group yes were you mm-hmm. know it's it's all part of the package so i don't really see much difference between um genres i don't i just think it's the color you know it's like we're all people what outfit you wear in today
1: what's well, also interesting cuz you know based on what i understand about you and, and wh- how you grew up surrounded by music of all kinds um, that I presume had some impact in, in, in the way that you absorb music and appreciate music from the classical to the you know the, the folk songs, European folk songs to the acoustic folk songs and whatever. like it's, it just seems like you've done so many different things and and you were always open to so many different things.
0: Yeah, but I—it's just—it's about um, for me reducing it down to the basic strong element. It's like being able to speak a number of languages. You know, what are the thoughts? That's the important thing. Right. Speaking the language is nothing. Are you saying anything? And if if what you're saying is strong enough, it gets translated into different languages. So, to me, French is, it might might as well be rock, and Greek might as well be folk music. You know, it's. It's just a tone, a language, uh, a way of dressing something. But it's got to have a message, and it has to say something. A great melody can be played in a million different genres, you know, and it is. That's why the greats are played like that, the great songs.
1: Right. So is it it because of your songwriting that you got into producing, or how how did your producing work come about?
0: Um, my producing work came about simply because um, I was working with folk singers and I had multi-track tape recorders. I, I've been using tape recorders since I was 13. It's all I, I got it from my bar mitzvah. It's all I ever wanted. Then I got multi-track recorders later. Um, I was always experimenting with overdubbing and um, cutting tape and making weird sounds. And then people would come over to my house who I was working with. We'd have a rehearsal. And they'd see the equipment and we'd record something and then they didn't have a budget, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's what it comes down to. Hey, you mean we can record this here and I don't have to go to a studio. It's just a demo to send to the record company. Can we do it here? And you do it. And if you do a good job, somebody at the record company used to notice it going, Hey, this sounds really good. Why don't we just bring it in the studio? Um, And that's what happened. It's just, you know, word of mouth. It happened very casually. I didn't really try to do it. Then you do it once and you go, hey, somebody just hired me. Maybe if I get a better tape recorder, someone else will hire me. <laughs> and, uh, and you do that. And then you start. Um, but it's been, you know, it was years playing with Murray McLaughlin. I'd be there every minute of making those records and see what they would do. And I'd learn.
1: What point did you think you were good at producing?
0: I think when I saw what others were doing that I knew was wrong, like drinking too much wine at, at the session and forgetting to punch in, you know, the accordion overdub or whatever, when, when I knew it was there and we worked hard to get it. And, right. you know, okay, it says something for the personalities and I'm not, I'm not going to mention any names whatsoever. But when you recognize something that you know should have been there or something is too loud, really too loud, and it was, and it goes to record like that. Then um, you have an opinion about it, right. and you know maybe you're wrong. Maybe the loudness is exactly what the record needed, and people love that. But you start to get um, you start to get opinionated about what could be, and think you could do better, and then your own style comes out.
1: And is it easy to apply that knowledge to anybody? that would come to you and say, Ben, I want to work with you. I want you to be my producer, but I do industrial heavy metal or.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take, um, you know, the job if I didn't think I could offer something and mostly you have to know where the people are coming from. You know, um, I would ask simple questions like, who do you listen to at home? Right. You know, and if they said certain artists, I would know that, you know, this is not going to work. Right. You know, um, like if they love heavy metal, but they they you know they listen to nothing but Barry Manilow, you know there could be a problem. <laughs> and I know that the problem will translate into me doing a whole lot of work and them not liking it because your taste is so different. Right. So you have to be careful who you you know. I would usually try it with one or two tracks. I thought that was a fair way to do it. See and, if it works. You know? And
1: then you've also worked with some pretty big names. Is there anything about them that that you think? They are who they are. They are as popular, or they've had the success that they have, because of what they do.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, most of the greats are great for a reason. It's not, you know, it's not just that they had a great manager uh, or they got lucky. If they stuck around and and repeated that success, it's just astounding to me to to be in the same room with some people who. You know, when you hear those voices you've heard a billion times on record and you're standing right next to them and they're doing it and you see how effortlessly they're doing it. um, You go, okay, I get it. They're not trying. They don't (laughs) even know what they're doing. And and they're that good. You know, Um, I mean, I've heard Katie Lang sing happy birthday to me on the phone and it's better than any singer. I mean, it's it's astounding she's not thinking about it, right? You know, and, and the same thing, you know, you get Getty Lee singing that stuff, you know, I mean, it's incredible to see the talent some people have naturally, like the, the just the, 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 water fountain that, that God gave them that just opened their mouth and it just comes out. It's incredible.
1: Wow. Um, the other thing that you, you were known for and have done a lot of with movie soundtracks.
0: Yeah. How did, how did that happen? Um, it happened. I was doing it actually just before I met KD. I was doing some film work and I used to do um, national film board film things for, um, or industrial films. I, again, people would just sort of come up like a friend of mine uh, would just say, Hey, you know, I know I met this guy, he's doing films and they need something for uh, rock blasting in Northern Ontario. We need to do, we can do some, um, music. They just want some folk music for that. Can we do it? And I'd get my crappy tape recorder, and we'd go in there, we'd do it, and then they'd match it up. Uh, that's how it starts. And then somebody hears it, and they go, yeah, he finished the job on time. He showed up. Um, let's give him a shot. And um, it grows from there. And it, then when digital technology started happening, and it became far easier to simply load pieces of music in against picture because it used to be a whole decimal system of calculation it was just agonizing to do that I can't tell you how hard it was really you have to to go one two three go and press video and tape recorder play at the same time and hope they lined up
1: right
0: you know and later when it became digital it was a cinch um but i enjoyed that again it depends on who you're working with because a lot of people the, the producers um don't understand how complicated the process is and they'd say You know, you spent all night putting together something and putting together an emotional moment based on somebody touching their eyebrow with their index finger. And then they go, oh, yeah, we cut that scene out. And everything else doesn't line up. Right. You know, and then, of course, digital technology happened and people were able to send stems, you know, the broken up parts of of all the instruments. And you no longer had control. So what was your vision became someone else's vision. And if that person doesn't like the bagpipes you put in, they would take it out and leave only the bass, for instance. So it was not your composition anymore. And it, it became a very difficult situation a lot of the time. You lose um, control.
1: But, but when you're actually writing for a project like a movie, um, mm-hmm. is, is the writing, the composition process different or the same as writing um,
0: an album with somebody? I think it's very different. I think that your emotional investment in an album is far deeper. um, Unless you're not really into the material and you've got a timeline. Right. Um, Because with films, it's, you know, that expression, um, I don't care if it's good, I want it Tuesday, you know. Right. That, you know, that runs a lot more true than with an album. An album is... At least when when I was making them were um they were individual statements, they were big pieces of your life. I don't know if it's the same now, it's not you know not for everyone, and there's so much more work being done by committee you know where where a beat gets the same priority that a lyric did in in the old days um, but you know there's a lot of ways to achieve something so.
1: So at this point in your life, are you playing that much live at all? Like, Is, is all your musical playing done in the studio or are you performing live right now? Is not possible, but...
0: No, it's not. No, but I, I always make it a part of what I do, even if it's on a, a small local level. Like I do a lot of drop-in stuff. Um, on Pender Island, there's a really cool folk scene going on there, or at least there was before COVID, and some wonderful players there. Um, So I will drop in and do that kind of thing. I get together with friends all the time. Um, When I visit some of my old buddies, we always jam. I, you know, write some ambient music with with my daughter even. It's a a great dad-daughter thing to do, and she's enormously musical. Um, I'm always playing. I play every day. Uh, I think it's an important part of my, just my mental balance. It has been since I was a little kid. So it's you know, the tone I navigate my life through, and it's very, very important to me to do it even for 10 minutes. I mean, I take a, a solid body electric violin with me in my suitcase, even when I travel and, um, for at least 10 minutes a day, I pick it up and make sure the fingers are working and the, that vibrational loop between, you know, the bow and my hands and that whole thing. It, it really settles me down
1: is it mainly the violin now like is the guitar and the
0: mandolin not traveling with you no no i it's if i can um stay in shape on violin i'm automatically in shape on guitar uh the the reverse is not true cuz you need your bowing and, and violin is so much more an exacting right. thing and guitar um it's it's usually there i mean i'm i'm working on some material right now for a, a singer who's i won't mention any names but um i'm enjoying it and i'm i've got a guitar 12 string guitar an electric guitar and two violins in the in the hotel room and um i've shrunk it all down to you know just desktop technology which is working great um but i'm traveling with that now so
1: that kid who didn't want to go and sell insurance (laughs) that that goal was achieved yeah, well, you got to
0: buy insurance though now <laughs> for all the instruments. <laughs> Good point. Um, and and I have and I think there's a lot of nice insurance guys around. You know, I I look at it differently. Then I I just wanted to rock really at that age.
1: Okay, but and, for for that kid who thought, okay, I don't want to do that. I want to go into music. And the, yeah. you look at the the path that you've taken from doing a lot and playing a lot to your film work and your production work is. Obviously this is where you wanted to end up.
0: Well, no, I wanted to I want to keep playing and keep producing and keep um being active. And that was going on before COVID. I mean there were some good things that were developing and um you know I, I I'm not at liberty to say, but there were some very cool touring opportunities I had uh that I would have definitely done, you know, and um and some film stuff too, but uh it just didn't work out, you know, and there were some family things going on that I had to, as a proper human and father had to deal with. Right. And, um, that's your priority. You know, you're not single and, and freewheeling. So you, you have to be a a person. Right. And, uh, but no, I want to play and keep doing it. Like as long as I can breathe and walk, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, I think I'm just programmed for it and I love it.
1: So would would you consider doing another album? Like,
0: I know you always would.
1: Yeah, like, a, so what would motivate you to do another solo album?
0: Um, I think um, just the need to make a personal statement. I think, you know, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking, a lot of people tell me I should be writing down my memoirs. Otherwise they're lost forever. I'm not saying that it needs to be in a book form, um, but it should be down there for my family and myself. Um, there's a lot of good stories I've accumulated. Yeah, I can And, you. Um, you know, and another album is an audio version of those stories. Really. You know, you can revisit things that you, you, you overview your life. You know, it, it's interesting because I reread Siddhartha, that book that I, I loved as a as a kid Mm -hmm. and of course your personal view you know you identify with the older guy instead of the younger guy but it still has a lot of validity and i think doing a record would would also be that same sort of feeling where you've got the overview and you um there's a certain bittersweet melancholy but you know a happiness that you are still there and able to describe it Um, I'm writing down ideas all the time. I think it would help to have somebody to share it with um, instead of making it solo effort, because Mm -hmm. I'm, I, frankly, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of poking texts into phones and talking (laughs) on zoom conferences. You know, I would really love to do something with somebody who I can uh, communicate with and, you know, make it a project, even if it's not a, solo Ben Mink project at least it's a duo project it still has a lot to say and you can re- I mean, look I may release some single tracks you know just put it out there I don't know what you do with it you don't tour it Yeah, nobody's really going to pay for it anymore it just becomes a personal statement and if you cast it upon the wind and someone else loves it and it helps them through the day then that maybe that's enough
1: for sure um I know I'm going to have to wrap this up, but I really enjoyed this talk. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: Well, thank you for, for asking me. Can really? I it's, just
1: it's... finish off with one question?
0: Sure. So when you look at this path
1: that you've taken and what a fascinating path it has been, um, what's the philosophy that you live under? Like what has guided you through this trip, this journey? Oh, man. Yeah. Um...
0: I don't know. Just keep walking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. if you, just, you just keep walking. And I think to follow your original hunch. I mean, uh, everyone's got an intuition. I think it's a crime t- for someone to, to try to squash that, you know. Um, I was fortunate enough, even though my parents didn't really want me to do it, they never... They never said I can't, you know. Did they appreciate they,
1: the success?
0: Yeah, and I was very, very fortunate enough to have them witness it because I know some musicians who didn't get right. the opportunity. They worked, and the, you know, sometimes you want to just prove it all to your parents to show them you were they were wrong. You are not wasting your time or crazy. But my parents were able to see me at the height of, you know, the um, the glory years, right. And it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, my kids never did. You know, I had them after the whole thing, but they they had plenty of fun. You know, they played with Feist in the uh, in the recreational room. And, you know, she came over to the house and had soup with them, you know. So they had they had that. They didn't see the struggle. Right. And I'm glad they didn't to tell you the truth. But um, I think you just keep keep marching. You keep going, you know, as long as you can. Because the, the crappy day becomes a better one the next day. And it gets crappy after that. But you just you just keep doing it. Follow your gut. That's all I've ever done, really. And uh, it's worked out miraculously. You know, I, I, I told my kids, you know, there was a point where I... When I was about 18, I had, I remember, two bucks in my pocket and a fiddle case. And I started hitchhiking. And that's all it was. Where I ended up, I ended up. I had no... Bigger plan outside of like, I just want to play and get out of here because the subgroups were killing me. So, <laughs> well, wow, what a journey though! Yeah, it's it's been good and it's not over. So, we'll see where it goes. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, well, thank you, thank you so much. You've been um, an excellent interviewer, anyway. Thanks again. Thanks.